Welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. I don't even know how we start this. <laughs> Go ahead, introduce us, Zach. Start us off. Okay, okay, okay. I'll 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 do a cold take. Okay. <clears throat> so today on the podcast, we're discussing one of my favorite cases from law school, the Queen Anne Merica. It is one of the longest cases I had to read and also one of the most confusing cases I have to read because I can completely see the arguments from the majority. I can completely agree with the arguments from the dissent. <laughs> and Justice um, Justice Rowe's concurring decision is just kind of thrown in the mix for just some added flair if you really want to think about it. So really quickly, the reason I picked this case is because I covered it in my crim law in the charter class covered or taught by justice pomerantz and i picked search and seizure as my topic and i thought what a better topic about informational privacy than text messages on someone else's cell phone yeah i mean that's you know hot topic du jour for sure i am not a crim law stan generally so i'd actually never heard or read this case which is probably not the best but as i say i'm not the crim focused but I do know about search and seizure, so I'm excited. Yeah, and what for me strikes this case is so interesting is like I said, once you start to pull apart the Chief Justice's decisions, you can see where Justice Moldaver was coming in and saying, you know, there's going to be problems with this when you create it. But as somebody who is vastly interested in protecting his personal privacy from state intrusion, I think this really benefits the individual but I do understand the argument that like, if they always need to get a warrant to search your phone, what's going to happen to the criminal justice system? Things aren't going great. And I think everyone knows the system's kind of like on the brink of collapsing. (laughs) Yeah, it's yeah. So where do we go? Yeah, I always do find it interesting, though, when, you know, a case will go to the Supreme Court. And there's just like, everyone is coming at it from such different, like sort of uh, states of mind. That when you're reading the decisions, you're like, okay, like, I get that. I understand that. Like, I don't really, I don't know if I agree, but like, I understand where you're coming from. And it's just so crazy how they can hear the same, you know, review the same materials, hear the same evidence, you know, interrogate the same lawyers. And they end up with like completely different takes, especially on like sort of key issues. And as you mentioned, like a lot of the times there can almost be like a generational divide between how people are coming down on certain decisions, which makes total sense. You know, if you're not an internet brat like us. And I'm not even a full internet brat. I wasn't an internet child until I was like an adolescent. It's like, you know, it's crazy to think about these issues when you just have no frame of reference because it just wasn't your life as a kid. Yeah. And a lot of these cases that go up for like search and seizure when they relate to like new technology are so interesting because not only do you have like the privacy interest writ large, you also have like considerations of like, what is the company who you're using to ensure your privacy interest is protected, right? You know, Apple phones, I've known, have been historically very hard to open up once the police sees them. They need special permission from Apple to bypass the password and this, that, and the other Mm -hmm. thing. And so with the rapid pace of technology, because I remember my first cell phone was a sliding cell phone. Oh my God, I'm even older than you. (laughs) Sliding cell phones came in when I was in college. Oh my God. (laughs) 
What, like, when could you start using internet on your cell phone? I was, internet on my cell phone, I was in graduate school. So it was 2011 when I was in graduate school and I had internet on my phone. Because in high school, like, I had a flip phone and you couldn't. You couldn't ever, like, I had to pay extra and we didn't have that on our plan or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and, like, I remember my friends, a couple of my friends who I was, like, and within high school were, like, oh, no, I got Facebook notifications on my phone. My dad's going to kill me because my internet bill for the phone's going to go up. Yeah. And, like, I can, I just leave my apartment now, and, like, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Spotify. Oh, yeah, 100%. It's got to check the apps. Like, what, a decade's time? <laughs> yeah. Less than? It's crazy. Zachary, I grew up with dial internet on a phone line when I was in, like, the 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, so... Oh, I remember that too. I <laughs> my parents definitely had dial up too with the family computer with the roll up yes, desk and everything. Exactly. No, like it's, <laughs> no shame it's crazy. on them. Like I'm not ancient. I'm like 31. It's crazy that like all this stuff has changed so fast since I was like a little kid. And you definitely get why there's just like there are certain things related to technology that just you will never understand because you didn't experience it firsthand as a kid. Like even now, like there's some things kids do with online stuff that I'm just like, I'm too old to learn that. I don't understand. And I'm never going to because I'm not 12 and I'm not on TikTok and I will never be those two things at once. So like have at it because I will never get it. Yeah. So I think, I think this kind of finishes us off. I guess there's two (laughs) major points. One, as lawyers, our job hopefully will be to educate other members of potentially the bench, the bar on the benefits and detriments of technology as they come up into we need to stay on top of technology because who knows what's going to happen in the next decade. Exactly. Password protect your phone, everybody. (laughs) Please do that. (laughs) All right, let's get to the case. The Queen in America Heard on March 23rd, 2017 Judgment rendered December 8th, 2017 Writing for the Majority, Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin. 1. Introduction Can Canadians ever reasonably expect the text messages they send to remain private, even after the messages have reached their destination? Or is the state free, regardless of the circumstances, to access text messages from a recipient's device without a warrant? The question in this appeal is whether the guarantee against unreasonable search and seizure in Section 8 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms can ever apply to such messages. The appellant, Newer America, sent text messages regarding illegal transactions and firearms. The police obtained warrants to search his home and that of his accomplice, Andrew Winchester. They seized Mr. America's Blackberry and Mr. Winchester's iPhone searched both devices, and found incriminating text messages. They charged Mr. Merica and sought to use the text messages as evidence against him. At trial, Mr. Merica argued that the messages should not be admitted against him because they were obtained in violation of his Section 8 right against unreasonable search and seizure. The application judge held that the warrant for Mr. Merica's residence was invalid and that the text messages recovered from his BlackBerry could not be used against him but that Mr. America had no standing to argue that the text messages recovered from Mr. Winchester's iPhone should not be admitted against him. He admitted the text messages and convicted Mr. America of multiple firearms offenses. The majority of the Court of Appeal for Ontario, 
agreed that Mr. America could have no expectation of privacy in the text messages recovered from Mr. Winchester's iPhone, and hence did not have standing to argue against their admissibility. I conclude that, depending on the totality of the circumstances, text messages that have been sent and received may in some cases be protected under Section 8, and in this case, Mr. America has standing to argue that the text messages at issue enjoy Section 8 protection. The conclusion that a text message conversation can, in some circumstances, attract a reasonable expectation of privacy does not lead inexorably to the conclusion that an exchange of electronic messages will always attract a reasonable expectation of privacy. Whether a reasonable expectation of privacy in such a conversation is present in any particular case must be assessed on those facts by the trial judge. In this case, Mr. America subjectively believed his text messages to be private even after Mr. Winchester received them. This expectation was objectively reasonable. I therefore conclude that Mr. America has standing to challenge the use of the text messages against him on the grounds that the search violated Section 8 of the Charter. Ordinarily, standing established, it would be for the trial judge to determine whether the text messages in fact enjoyed Section 8 protection in all of the circumstances of the case. However, the Crown concedes that, if Mr. America had standing, the search was unreasonable and violated Mr. America's right under Section 8 of the Charter. The remaining question is whether the evidence of the conversation should have been excluded under Section 24.2 of the Charter. I conclude that it should have been. This principled approach conforms to the jurisprudence and should not be undermined by impassioned hypotheses. I would therefore allow the appeal, set aside the convictions, and acquit Mr. America. 2. Analysis A. When does Section 8 protection apply? The issue is whether the courts below erred in holding that an accused can never claim Section 8 protection for the text messages accessed through a recipient's phone because the sender has no privacy interest in the messages if they are not contained within his or her own device. The question is whether Mr. America could have a reasonable expectation of privacy in those messages. Section 8 of the Charter provides that everyone has the right to be secured against unreasonable search or seizure. Section 8 applies where a person has a reasonable privacy interest in the object or subject matter of the state action and the information to which it gives access. See the Queen and Cole, as well as the Queen and Spencer. To claim Section 8 protection, a claimant must first establish a reasonable expectation of privacy in the subject matter of the search i.e. that the person subjectively expected it would be private and that this expectation was objectively reasonable. See the Queen and Edwards, as well as Hunter and Southam Incorporated. Whether the claimant had a reasonable expectation of privacy must be assessed in the totality of the circumstances. See the Queen and Edwards and the Queen and Spencer. This approach applies to determining whether there is a reasonable expectation of privacy in a given text message conversation. In considering the totality of the circumstances, four lines of inquiry guide the court's analysis. 1. What was the subject matter of the alleged search? 2. Did the claimant have a direct interest in the subject matter? 3. Did the claimant have a subjective expectation of privacy in the subject matter? 4. If so, was the claimant's subjective expectation of privacy objectively reasonable? Only if the answer to the fourth question is yes, that is, if the claimant's subjective expectation of privacy was objectively reasonable, will the claimant have standing to assert his Section 8 right? 
If the court so concludes, the claimant may argue that the state action in question was unreasonable. If, however, the court determines that the claimant did not have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the subject matter of the alleged search, then the state action cannot have violated the claimant's Section 8 right. He will not have standing to challenge its constitutionality. B. Did Mr. America have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the text messages? I conclude that the four lines of inquiry referred to above establish that Mr. America had a reasonable expectation of privacy in the text messages recovered from Mr. Winchester's iPhone. The subject matter of the alleged search was the electronic conversation between Mr. America and Mr. Winchester. Mr. America had a direct interest in the subject matter. He subjectively expected it to remain private. The expectation was objectively reasonable. He therefore has standing to challenge the search. Sub 1. What was the subject matter of the search? The first step in the analysis is to identify the subject matter of the search. How the subject matter is defined may affect whether the applicant has a reasonable expectation of privacy. Care must therefore be taken in defining the subject matter of a search, particularly where the search is of electronic data. The subject matter of a search must be defined functionally, not in terms of physical acts, physical space, or modulates of transmission. As Doherty J.A. states in The Queen and Ward, a court identifying the subject matter of a search must not do so narrowly in the terms of the physical acts involved or the physical space invaded, but rather by reference to the nature of the privacy interest potentially compromised by the state action. In Spencer, Cromwell J. endorsed these words and added that courts should take a broad and functional approach to the question examining the connection between the police investigative technique and the privacy interest at stake, and should look at not only the nature of the precise information sought, but also at the nature of the information that it reveals. The court's task, as Doherty J.A. put it in award, is to determine what the police were really after. One option can be eliminated at the outset. The subject matter of the search at issue was not Mr. Winchester's iPhone, from which the text messages in this case were recovered, Neither the iPhone itself nor its contents generally is what the police were really after. The subject matter must, therefore, be defined more precisely. Correctly characterized, the subject matter of this search was Mr. America's electronic conversation with Mr. Winchester, see the Queen and Telus communications. To describe the text messages as part of an electronic conversation is to take a holistic view of the subject matter of the search. This properly avoids a mechanical approach that defines the subject matter in terms of physical acts, spaces, or modalities of transmission. It also reflects the technological reality of text messaging. Text messaging refers to the electronic communication medium technically known as short message service, SMS. SMS uses standardized communication protocols in mobile telephone service networks to transmit short text messages from one mobile phone to another. Colloquially known, however, text messaging, or the verb to text, can also describe various other person-to-person -person electronic communication tools, such as Apple iMessage, Google Hangouts, and BlackBerry Messenger. This means of nearly instant communication are both technologically distinct from and functionally equivalent to SMS. Different service providers also handle SMS messages differently. The data that constitutes individual SMS or other text messages may exist in different places at different times. They may be transmitted, stored, and accessed in different ways. But the interconnected system in which they all participate functions to permit rapid communications of short messages between individuals. 
In these reasons, I use text messages to refer to the broader category of electronic communications media and SMS or SMS messages to refer to that medium specifically. When a text message is searched, it is not the copy of the message stored on the sender's device, the copy stored on a service provider's server, or the copy in the recipient's inbox that the police are really after. It is the electronic conversation between two or more people that law enforcement seeks to access. Where data are physically or electronically located varies from phone to phone, from service provider to service provider, or with text messaging more broadly, from technology to technology. The Section 8 analysis must be robust to these distinctions, in harmony with the need to take a broad, purposive approach to the privacy protection under Section 8 of the Charter. If the broad and general light to be secure from unreasonable search and seizure guaranteed by Section 8 is meant to keep pace with technological development, then the courts must recognize that SMS technology, in which messages may be said to be sent, received, and transmitted between devices, is just one means of text messaging among many, and is, from the point of view of the user, functionally identical to numerous others. As Abella J. states in TELUS at Para 5, technical differences inherent in new technology should not determine the scope of protection afforded to private communications. The subject matter of the search is the conversation, not its components. I conclude, and Moldaver J agrees, that for the purpose of determining whether Section 8 is capable of protecting SMS or other text messages, the subject matter of the search is the electronic conversation between the sender and the recipients. This includes the existence of the conversation, the identities of the participants, the information shared, and any references about associations and activities that can be drawn from the information. Subheading 2. Did Mr. America have a direct interest in the subject matter? Mr. America had a direct interest in the information contained in the electronic conversation that was the subject matter of the search. He was a participant in that electronic conversation and the author of the particular text messages introduced as evidence against him. Subheading 3. Did Mr. America have a subjective expectation of privacy in the subject matter? The claimant must have a subjective expectation of privacy in the subject matter of the alleged search for Section 8 to be engaged. As Binny J. acknowledged in The Queen and Patrick at paragraph 37, the requirement that the claimant establish a subjective expectation of privacy is not a high hurdle. See also The Queen and Jones. Whether Mr. America had a subjective expectation of privacy in the contents of his electronic conversation with Mr. Winchester has never been in serious dispute. Mr. America's evidence was that he expected Mr. Winchester to keep the contents of their electronic conversation private. See Application Judge's Reasons at paragraph 91. He testified that he asked Mr. Winchester numerous times to delete the text messages from his iPhone. I conclude that Mr. America subjectively expected that the contents of his electronic conversation with Mr. Winchester would remain private. Subheading 4. Was Mr. America's subjective expectation of privacy objectively reasonable? The claimant's subjective expectation of privacy in the subject matter of the alleged search must have been objectively reasonable in order to engage Section 8. Over the years, courts have referred to a number of factors that may assist in determining whether it was reasonable to expect privacy in different circumstances. See Cole, Tesling, and Edwards. The factors that figured most prominently into the arguments before us are 1. The place where the search occurred. 2. The private nature of the subject matter 
i.e. whether the informational content of the electronic conversation revealed details of the claimant's lifestyle or information of a biographic nature. And three, control over the subject matter. I will consider each of these factors in turn. I will then deal with the policy arguments raised against recognizing Section 8 protection for text messages. A. The place of the search. Place may be helpful in determining whether a person has a reasonable expectation of privacy for the purposes of Section 8. At common law, privacy was often designated by place, as evident in the old dictum that every man's home is his castle. See Tesling at Para 22. Place may inform whether it is reasonable to expect a verbal conversation to remain private. Depending on the circumstances, a conversation in a crowded restaurant may not attract the protection of Section 8, while the same conversation behind closed doors may. The factor of place was largely developed in the context of territorial privacy interests, and digital subject matter, such as an electronic conversation, does not easily fit within the strictures set out by the jurisprudence. What is the place of an electronic text message conversation? And what light does that shed on a claimant's reasonable expectation of privacy? Place is important only insofar as it informs the objective reasonableness of a subjective expectation of privacy. One possibility is that an electronic conversation does not occupy a particular physical space. All or part of it may be on the sender's phone or the recipient's, or in radio waves, or a service provider's database or on a remote server to which both the sender and the recipient or recipients have access, or some combination of these. This interconnected web of devices and servers creates an electronic world of digital communication that, in the 21st century, is every bit as real as physical space. The millions of us who text friends, family, and acquaintances may each be viewed as having appropriated a corner of this electronic space for our own purposes. There. We seclude ourselves and convey our private messages, just as we might in a room in a home or an office to talk behind closed doors. The phrase chat room to describe an internet site through which people communicate is not merely a metaphor. In a similar way, text messaging can create private chat rooms between individuals. Although electronic, these rooms are the places of the search. This suggests that there would be a reasonable expectation of privacy in a text message conversation. Another option is to say that the place of the search is the device through which the messages are accessed or stored. See Moldaver J's reasons at Paras 144 and 151. Again, this suggests that there may be a reasonable expectation of privacy in a text message conversation. Control or regulation of access to a place is relevant to a reasonable expectation of privacy. See Edwards at Para 45. I may have a high expectation of privacy in my own phone, which I completely control, a lesser expectation of privacy in my friend's phone, which I expect her to control, and no reasonable expectation of privacy at all if I expect the text message to be displayed to the public. A reasonable expectation of privacy may exist on a spectrum or in a hierarchy of places. See Tesling at Para 22. The place of the search is simply one of several factors that must be weighed to determine whether the accused had a reasonable expectation of privacy for the purpose of Section 8 of the Charter. Whether one views the place of an electronic conversation as a metaphorical chat room or a real physical place, it is clear that the place of the text message conversation does not exclude an expectation of privacy. At the end of the day, Section 8 protects people, not places. See Hunter at page 159. 
the question always comes back to what the individual in all the circumstances should reasonably have expected. B. The private nature of the information. The purpose of Section 8 is to protect a biographical core of personal information which individuals in a free and democratic society would wish to maintain and control from dissemination to the state. See the Queen and Plan. It follows that the potential for revealing private information is a factor to consider in determining whether an electronic conversation attracts a reasonable expectation of privacy and is protected by Section 8 of the Charter. In considering this factor, the focus is not on the actual contents of the messages the police have seized, but rather on the potential of a given electronic conversation to reveal personal or biographical information. For the purposes of Section 8 of the Charter, the conversation is an opaque and sealed bag of information, see Patrick at Para 32, as well as Wong at page 50. What matters is whether in the circumstances, a search of an electronic conversation may betray information which tends to reveal intimate details of the lifestyle and personal choices of the individual, see Plant at page 293, such that a conversation's participants have a reasonable expectation of privacy in its contents, whatever they may be, see Cole at 47 and Teasling at 25 and 27. Individuals may even have an acute privacy interest in the fact of their electronic communications. As Marshall McLuhan observed at the dawn of the technological era, the medium is the message. See M. McLuhan, Understanding Media, The Extension of Man. The medium of text messaging broadcasts a wealth of personal information capable of revealing personal and core biographical information about the participants in the conversation. The personal nature of the information that can be derived from text messages is linked to the private nature of texting. People may be inclined to discuss personal matters in electronic conversations precisely because they understand that they are private. The receipt of the information is confined to the other people to whom the message was sent. Service providers are contracted to confidentiality. Apart from the possible police intercept, which cannot be considered for the purpose of determining a reasonable expectation of privacy, no one else knows about the message or its contents. See Patrick at para 14, Wang at page 47, The Queen and Duarte. Indeed, it is difficult to think of a type of conversation or communication that is capable of promising more privacy than a text message. There is no more discrete form of correspondence. Participants need not be in the same physical space. In fact, they almost never are. It is, as this court unanimously accepted in TELUS, a private communication as the term is defined in section 183 of the criminal code. Namely, a telecommunication that is made under circumstances in which it is reasonable for the originator to expect that it will not be intercepted by any person other than the person intended by the originator to receive it. See TELUS at para 12, para Bella J at para 67, per Moldaver J at para 153, and per Caramel J. One can even text privately in plain sight. A wife has no way of knowing that, when her husband appears to be catching up on emails, he is in fact conversing by text message with a paramour. A father does not know whom or what his daughter is texting at the dinner table. Electronic conversations can allow people to communicate details about their activities, their relationships, and even their identities that they would never reveal to the world at large, and to enjoy portable privacy in doing so. Electronic conversations, in sum, are capable of revealing a great deal of personal information. Preservation of a zone of privacy in which personal information is safe from state intrusion is the very purpose of Section 8 of the Charter, see Patrick at Para 77. 
As the foregoing examples illustrate, this zone of privacy extends beyond one's own mobile device. It can include the electronic conversations in which one shares private information with others. It is reasonable to expect these private interactions, and not just the contents of the particular cell phone at a particular point in time, to remain private. C. Control Control, ownership, possession, and historical use have long been considered relevant to determining whether a subjective expectation of privacy is objectively reasonable. See Edwards at para 45, Cole at para 51. Like other factors, control is not an absolute indicator of a reasonable expectation of privacy, nor is lack of control fatal to a privacy interest. See Cole at 54 and 58, the Queen and Buhe at 22. Control is one element to be considered in the totality of the circumstances in determining the objective reasonableness of a subjective expectation of privacy. Control must be analyzed in relation to the subject matter of the search, the electronic conversation. Individuals exercise meaningful control over the information they send by text messages by making choices about how, when, and to whom they disclose the information. They determine for themselves when, how, and to what extent information about them is communicated to others. C.A.F. Weston, Privacy and Freedom, at page 7, quoted in Spencer, cited in Tesling. See also The Queen and Diamond. The Crown argues that Mr. America lost all control over the electronic conversation with Mr. Winchester because Mr. Winchester could have disclosed it to the third parties. However, the risk that recipients can disclose the text messages they receive does not change the analysis. See Duart at page 44 and 51, Cole at para 58. To accept the risk of a co-conversationalist could disclose an electronic conversation is not to accept the risk of a different order that the state will intrude upon an electronic conversation absent such disclosure. The regulation of electronic surveillance protects us from a risk of a different order, i.e. not the risk that someone will repeat our words, but the much more insidious danger inherent in allowing the state, in its unfettered discretion, to record and transmit our words. See Duart at page 44. Therefore, the risk that a recipient could disclose an electronic conversation does not negate a reasonable expectation of privacy in an electronic conversation. The cases are clear. A person does not lose control of information for the purposes of Section 8 simply because another person possesses it or can access it. Even where technological reality deprives an individual of exclusive control over his or her personal information, he or she may yet reasonably expect that information to remain safe from state scrutiny. Mr. America shared information with Mr. Winchester. In doing so, he accepted the risk that Mr. Winchester might disclose this information to third parties. However, by accepting this risk, Mr. America did not give up his control over the information or his right to protection under Section 8. The shared control aspect of this case is similar to that in Cole. Mr. Cole had pornography stored on his work computer. His employer, like Mr. Winchester in this case, could access the contents of the computer. Mr. Cole did not have an exclusive control of the physical location search, his work-issued laptop. Yet this court held that Mr. Cole had a reasonable expectation of privacy in the subject matter of the search, i.e. the pornographic material stored on the computer. See Cole at Paris 51-58. The majority of the Court of Appeal distinguished Cole on the grounds that Mr. Cole's employer permitted users to use the computers for personal purposes in contrast to Mr. America, who had no such privilege with respect to Mr. Winchester's iPhone. Moldaver J, meanwhile, emphasizes that Mr. Cole retained the ability to delete information on the computer and prevent its dissemination. 
With respect, it is difficult to see what difference it would have made if Mr. Winchester had permitted Mr. America to use his iPhone to delete text messages or for any other purpose. The issue is not who owns the device through which the electronic conversation is accessed, but rather whether the claimant exercised control over the information reflected therein. In Cole, that was pornographic images. In this case, it was the electronic conversation between Mr. America and Mr. Winchester. My colleague Moldaver J concludes that control is a crucial contextual factor in this case, see para 117, and finds that Mr. America's lack of control over Mr. Winchester's phone is fatal to his reasonable expectation of privacy in the electronic conversation. With great respect, I take a different view. First, control is not dispositive, but only one factor to be considered in the totality of the circumstances. Second, my colleague's approach focuses not on the subject matter of the search, the electronic conversation, but rather on the device through which the information was accessed, Mr. Winchester's phone. Sometimes, control over information may be a function of control over a physical object or place. However, this is not the only indicator of effective control. Sometimes, as with electronic conversations, control may arise from the choice of medium and the designated recipient. I would conclude that the risk that Mr. Winchester could have disclosed the text messages does not negate Mr. America's control over the information contained therein. By choosing to send a text message by way of a private medium to a designated person, Mr. America was exercising control over the electronic conversation. The risk that the recipient could have disclosed it, if he chose to, does not negate the reasonableness of Mr. America's expectation of privacy against state intrusion. D. Policy Considerations It is suggested that even if the place of the search, the private nature of the subject matter, and the control over the subject matter support the conclusion that there may have been an objectively reasonable expectation of privacy in a given electronic conversation, the court should not recognize such an expectation because of the impact that this would have on law enforcement. The Crown argues, and Moldaver J concludes, that these considerations should tip the balance against recognition. Respectfully, I disagree. It is argued, see Moldaver J's reasons at Paras 178-88, that if Section 8 may protect the sender's privacy in a text message after it has been received, then the police will either be required to obtain warrants in more situations or will be inclined to do so out of an abundance of caution and that this may impact the ability of police to review messages sent to victims of sexual assault, sexual interference, harassment, child luring, and various other offenses without judicial authorization. Moldaver J rejects an interpretation of Section 8 that would allow sexual predators or abusive partners to retain a reasonable expectation of privacy in text messages that they may send to their victims. However, since Hunter, prior judicial authorization has been relied on to preserve our privacy rights under Section 8. In consequence, the fruits of a search cannot be used to justify an unreasonable privacy violation. To be meaningful, the Section 8 analysis must be content neutral. Nor does my position lead inevitably to the conclusion that the text messages sent by sexual predators to children or sent by abusive partners to their spouses will not be allowed into evidence. Three scenarios are possible. On the first scenario, the victim, his or her parents, or other intelligence alerts the police to the existence of offensive or threatening text messages on a device. Assuming that Section 8 is engaged when the police access text messages volunteered by a third party, see the Queen and Orlandis Habsburgo, a breach can be avoided if the police obtain a warrant prior to accessing the text messages. As stated in Cole, 
The school board was legally entitled to inform the police of his discovery of contraband on the laptop, and this would doubtlessly have permitted the police to obtain a warrant to search the computer for the contraband, paragraph 73. Similarly, victims of cyber abuse are legally entitled to inform the police, which will typically permit the police to obtain a warrant. The police officers will be aware that they should not look at the text messages in question prior to obtaining a warrant. On this scenario, there is no breach of Section 8 and the text messages will be received in evidence. The second scenario is where the police, for whatever reason, access an offensive or threatening text message without obtaining prior judicial authorization. On this scenario, depending on the totality of the circumstances, the accused may have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the text message and therefore have standing to argue that the text messages should be excluded. Standing is merely the opportunity to argue one's case. It does not follow that the accused argument will succeed, or that the search of the text message will be found to violate Section 8. While a warrantless search is presumptively unreasonable under Section 8, it is open to the Crown to establish on a balance of probabilities that the search was authorized by law, the law is reasonable, and the search was carried out in a reasonable manner. See the Queen and Collins at page 278. The third scenario arises where a reasonable expectation of privacy in the text messages and a breach of Section 8 are established under the second scenario. This does not mean that the evidence will be excluded. The Crown can argue that the evidence should be admitted under Section 24.2 of the Charter. My colleague Moldaver J foresees various other troubling consequences for law enforcement and the administration of criminal justice at paragraph 180. It is suggested that Section 8 challenges will add to the time required to try cases and may disrupt the balance between the state's interest in effective law enforcement and individuals' expectation of privacy. If and when such concerns arise, it will be for the courts to address them. There is nothing in the record to suggest that the justice system cannot adapt to the challenges of recognizing that some text message conversations may engage Section 8 of the Charter. Nor is it disputed that, where scrutiny of an electronic conversation is concerned, the state's interest in effective law enforcement is outweighed by the societal interest in protecting individual dignity, integrity, and autonomy. Whatever law enforcement's interest in enjoying unfettered access to individuals' text messages, privacy in electronic conversations is worthy of constitutional protection. That protection should not be lightly denied. E. Conclusion on reasonable expectation of privacy. I conclude that Mr. America's subjective expectation that his electronic conversation with Mr. Winchester would remain private was objectively reasonable in the totality of the circumstances. Each of the three factors relevant to this inquiry in this case, place, capacity to reveal personal information, and control, support this conclusion. If the place of the search is viewed as a private electronic space accessible only by Mr. America and Mr. Winchester, Mr. America's reasonable expectation of privacy is clear. If the place of the search is viewed as Mr. Winchester's phone, this reduces, but does not negate, Mr. America's expectation of privacy. The mere fact of the electronic conversation between the two men tended to reveal personal information about Mr. America's lifestyle, namely, that he was engaged in a criminal enterprise, see Patrick at Para 32. This the police could glean when they had done no more than scroll through Mr. Winchester's messages and identified Mr. America as one of his correspondents. In addition, Mr. America exercised control over the informational content of the electronic conversation and the manner in which information was disclosed. 
Therefore, Mr. America has standing to challenge the search and admission of the evidence, even though the state accessed his electronic conversation with Mr. Winchester through the latter's iPhone. This conclusion is not displaced by policy concerns. I conclude that in this case, Mr. America has standing under Section 8 of the Charter. This is not to say, however, that every communication occurring through an electronic medium will attract our reasonable expectation of privacy and hence grant an accused standing to make arguments regarding Section 8 protection. This case does not concern, for example, messages posted on social media, conversations occurring in crowded internet chat rooms, or comments posted on online message boards. On the facts of this case, Mr. America had a reasonable expectation of privacy in the electronic conversation accessed through Mr. Winchester's device. Different facts may well lead to different results. C. Was the search unreasonable? If Mr. America had standing, the Crown concedes that the search was unreasonable, though the Crown argued before the application judge that it was a valid search incident to Mr. Winchester's arrest. The application judge rejected that submission and the Crown did not pursue it before this court. It follows that the evidence was obtained by an unreasonable search of the electronic conversation between Mr. America and Mr. Winchester in violation of Mr. America's rights under Section 8 of the Charter. The text messages are thus presumptively inadmissible against him, subject to Section 24.2 of the Charter. D. Should the evidence be excluded? The application judge did not conduct an analysis under Section 24.2 of the Charter because he ruled against Mr. America on standing. The Crown submits that, if he has standing, the evidence should not be excluded under 24.2. I cannot agree. Section 24.2 provides, where, in proceedings under subsection 1, a court concludes that evidence was obtained in a manner that infringed or denied any rights or freedoms guaranteed by this Charter, the evidence shall be excluded if it is established that, Having regard to all the circumstances, the omission of it in the proceedings would bring the administration of justice into disrepute. In this case, consideration of the three lines of inquiry described in the Queen and Grant at paragraph 71 leads to the conclusion that the evidence must be excluded. 1. Seriousness of the Charter Infringing Conduct The police charter infringing conduct was sufficiently serious to favor the exclusion of the evidence. As this court recently explained in the Queen and Patterson, the court's task in considering the seriousness of charter infringing state conduct is to situate that conduct on a scale of culpability, with inadvertent or minor violations at one end and willful or reckless disregard of charter rights at the other end. Paragraph 4 to 3, quoting Grant at paragraph 74. Here, the actions of the police fall towards the more serious end of the spectrum. The search of Mr. Winchester's iPhone was not charter compliant, the applicant judge concluded, because it was not a valid search incident to his arrest. Though there is no suggestion that Mr. Winchester's arrest was anything but lawful, the police did not search his iPhone until more than two hours later. It was in the course of this search, which the Crown now concedes was unreasonable, that the police searched the electronic conversation between Mr. Winchester and Mr. America. The Crown submits that the lawfulness of Mr. Winchester's arrest diminishes the seriousness of the charter breach. The Crown argues that there was nothing improper about the seizure of Mr. Winchester's iPhone incident to his arrest, and notes that the application judge made no finding of bad faith on the part of the police. Before this court's decision in the Queen and Farron, the Crown says it was not so clear that the police required an additional warrant to forensically examine Mr. Winchester's iPhone.
This reliance on Pharaon is misplaced. In his reasons for the majority in that case, which concerned the extent of the common law power to search incident to arrest, Cromwell J. described the state of the law as follows at paragraph 2. At least four approaches have emerged. The first is to hold that the power to search incident to arrest generally includes the power to search cell phones, provided that the search is truly incidental to the arrest. The second view is that cursory searches are permitted. A third is that thorough data dump searches are not permitted incident to an arrest. Finally, it has also been held that searches of cell phones incident to arrest are not permitted except in exigent circumstances in which a cursory search is permissible. None of these approaches would have justified the search of Mr. Winchester's iPhone. As the application judge noted at para 114 of his reasons, there is no evidence as to why Winchester's phone could not have been searched at the time of arrest and at least rendered safe of why the delay of more than two hours occurred before the phone was looked at. The forensic examination of Mr. Winchester's iPhone breached the charter not only because of its extent, but also because of its timing. On the application judge's findings, this simply was not a search incident to arrest. Even if the police acted in good faith in waiting more than two hours to search the iPhone, their error cannot be described as reasonable. See Patterson at paragraph 44, citing Bouhey at paragraph 59. The law in this regard was clear before Feyron, just as it is now. In the absence of any explanation of the delay, searching Mr. Winchester's iPhone without a warrant two hours after his arrest was reckless and showed an insufficient regard for charter rights. The police committed a serious breach of the charter in examining Mr. Winchester's iPhone. That this was an infringement of Mr. Winchester's Section 8 right, not Mr. America's, does not detract from its seriousness. Of course, the police also breached Mr. America's Section 8 right directly when, in their search of Mr. Winchester's iPhone, they examined the contents of the electronic conversation between the two men. This, too, lacked any reasonable pretext of lawful authority. I conclude that the conduct of the police in accessing and searching the electronic conversation through Mr. Winchester's iPhone was sufficiently serious to favor the exclusion of the evidence. 2. The Impact of the Charter Infringing Conduct on Mr. America's Charter Protected Interests The impact of the Charter Infringing Conduct on Mr. America's Charter Protected Privacy Interest was significant. Though, as LaForme J.A. acknowledged, Mr. America had no independent interest in Mr. Winchester's iPhone. He nonetheless had a considerable Charter-protected privacy interest in his and Mr. Winchester's electronic conversation, the contents of which the illegal search of Mr. Winchester's iPhone revealed. That electronic conversation revealed private information that went to Mr. America's biographical core, as I have described. Mr. America had a reasonable expectation that the fact of his electronic conversation with Mr. Winchester, as well as its contents, would remain private. The charter infringing actions of the police obliterated that expectation. The impact on Mr. America's charter-protected interest was not just substantial, it was total. I recognize that, in certain circumstances, sharing control of subject matter diminishes an individual's privacy interest therein. Because Mr. America shared the ability to control access to the electronic conversation with Mr. Winchester, Mr. America's reasonable expectation of privacy was diminished, and that the impact of the search might be assessed accordingly. See Patterson at paragraph 49, Grant at paragraph 78, Muhe at paragraph 65. Even so, to argue against the evidence exclusion on this basis would reintroduce it at the 24-2 stage, the very sort of risk 
that this court rejected in Duart. It cannot be that the same impact on an accused charter-protected interest is less serious when an electronic conversation is illegally accessed through someone else's phone when that same conversation, in which the accused has the same charter-protected interest, is illegally accessed through the accused's own phone. A search may impact other charter-protected interests of the accused if it is his phone that is examined. But so far as the impact on the accused's privacy interest in the electronic conversation is concerned, the two scenarios just described are indistinguishable. Control of access to an electronic conversation is, by definition, shared by two or more participants. If this fact is sufficient to negate the impact of an illegal search of that conversation, then this factor will tend to favor the admission of the evidence in any case where an electronic conversation has been illegally searched. This can only undermine the very privacy interests that Section 8 of the Charter protects. This approach must be rejected. I conclude that the impact of the Charter infringing search on Mr. America's Charter-protected privacy interest was considerable. This factor favors exclusion. 3. Society's interest in the adjudication of the case on its merits. Society's interest in the adjudication of the case on its merits is significant. The SMS messages offer highly reliable and probative evidence into the prosecution of a serious offense. Exclusion of the messages would result in the absence of evidence by which the appellant would be convicted. This factor favors admission. 4. The evidence should be excluded. As the court recognized in Grant at paragraph 84, while the public has a heightened interest in seeing the determination on the merits where the offense charged is serious, it also has a vital interest in having a justice system that is above reproach, particularly where the penal stakes for the accused are high. Although the exclusion of their evidence would eviscerate the Crown's case against Mr. America on serious charges, it is important to not allow society's interest in adjudicating a case on its merits to trump all other considerations, particularly where the impugned conduct was serious and worked a substantial impact on the appellant's charter right. That is this case. On balance, I conclude that the admission of the evidence would bring the administration of justice into disrepute. It must therefore be excluded under Section 24.2 of the Charter. E. Should the provisio apply? The Crown submits that, even if the text messages obtained from Mr. Winchester's iPhone should be excluded, the appeal should nonetheless be dismissed on the basis of a curative provisio in Section 686.1b3 of the Criminal Code. The provisio can apply only where the Crown satisfies the court that the verdict would necessarily have been the same if the error had not occurred. See the Queen and Wildman. The Crown submits that this conduct is satisfied in this case because, it says, even if the text messages obtained from Mr. Winchester's iPhone should have been excluded, the same text messages from Mr. America's Blackberry should not have been. According to the Crown, the application judge did not err in admitting the text messages from Mr. Winchester's phone, he erred in admitting the text messages from the wrong phone. He should have admitted them from Mr. America's Blackberry instead. The Crown asked this court to reverse both rulings, conclude that the text messages from Mr. America's Blackberry should have been admitted, and, by operation of the provisio, allow his convictions to stand. I would not entertain this submission. It is not open to this court to speculate as to whether the application judge might have ruled differently on the admissibility of the text messages from Mr. America's Blackberry if he had not erred in admitting the text messages from Mr. Winchester's iPhone. 
The application judge made two different rulings based on his assessment of two different searches. That the searches both revealed the same text messages does not make the rulings any less distinct, nor is it within the scope of this appeal to revisit the application judge's evidentiary decisions at large. As Doherty J.A. explained in The Queen and James at Para 56, the application of the proviso must be considered in the context of the evidence heard by the jury, not the evidence it might have heard had the trial judge made different rulings. To consider excluded evidence, even wrongly excluded evidence, in deciding whether the provisio should be applied is to apply the proviso to a different case than the one that had been heard by the jury. The Crown notes that the application judge's reasons for excluding the text messages from Mr. America's Blackberry referred to his ruling admitting the text messages from Mr. Winchester's iPhone. The application judge said, at paragraphs 121 to 123, Given the seriousness of the offense involved, there is no question that society has a significant interest in the adjudication of the case against Mr. America on the merits. I do not understand, however, that the evidence in issue is crucial to the Crown's case. The key evidence the Crown seeks to adduce at trial from what was seized from Mr. America's residence are the text messages, recovered from Mr. America's phone. However, the text messages in question are also on Winchester's iPhone, and I have held that Mr. America has no standing to challenge its seizure under the Charter. Accordingly, I do not consider that exclusion of the evidence in issue would result in the termination of the Crown's case. Having regard to all three grant factors discussed above, it is my conclusion that the admission of the evidence seized in Mr. America's residence at trial would bring the administration of justice into disrepute. Accordingly, the evidence that was seized at Mr. America's residence shall be excluded. This cross-reference, the Crown says, makes this a case like RNCWB. At trial, the Crown sought to introduce evidence that was contained in two separate documents, a transcript and a hearsay statement. The evidence in the two documents was substantially the same. The trial judge excluded the transcript and admitted the hearsay statement. A majority of the Court of Appeal concluded that both rulings were wrong and that the proviso applied because, as Wheeler J.A. reasoned for the majority, the trial judge did not commit two separate compartmentalized errors. He committed one global error respecting the form as to which to admit similar fact evidence or evidence of prior discreditable conduct. This court unanimously agreed that the proviso was properly applied. Like the trial judge in CWB, the application judge in this case at bar admitted the evidence at issue from one source, Mr. Winchester's iPhone, and excluded the same evidence from another source, Mr. America's Blackberry, in the same ruling. In both cases, the reasons given for excluding the evidence from one source referred to the decision to admit it from the other. But the present case must be distinguished nonetheless. In CWB, the trial judge, having erroneously admitted the hearsay statement, excluded the transcript on the basis that it had become unnecessary. In other words, the trial judge's rulings were a mirror image of one another. The transcript was excluded because the statement was admitted. The same cannot be said here. The application judge admitted the text messages from Mr. Winchester's iPhone because he erroneously concluded that Mr. America lacked standing to challenge the constitutionality of the police conduct that uncovered them. The application judge excluded the text messages from Mr. America's Blackberry on an entirely separate basis. 
he determined that the warrant for the search of Mr. America's residence, in the course of which his Blackberry was seized, was invalid. Though the application judge acknowledged the admission of the text messages from Mr. Winchester's iPhone in his ruling, excluding the text messages from Mr. America's Blackberry, it simply cannot be said that the application judge excluded the text messages from Mr. America's Blackberry because the text messages from Mr. Winchester's iPhone would be admitted. Indeed, as I have already concluded, the text messages from Mr. Winchester's iPhone should have been excluded even though the text messages from Mr. America's Blackberry were not admitted, notwithstanding society's interest in the adjudication of the case on the merits. The two rulings in this case cannot be construed as a single error and so CWB does not assist the Crown. Here, the application judge's error was in admitting the text messages from Mr. Winchester's iPhone. Without the erroneously admitted evidence obtained from Mr. Winchester's iPhone, Mr. America would have been acquitted. He was convicted instead. To allow that conviction to stand would be a miscarriage of justice. The proviso does not apply. Conclusion and Disposition the application judge and the majority of the Court of Appeal erred in holding that Mr. America had no standing to challenge the admission of the SMS messages obtained from Mr. Winchester's iPhone. Mr. America reasonably expected that his electronic conversation with Mr. Winchester would remain private, even though it could be accessed through Mr. Winchester's mobile device. That reasonable expectation was protected by Section 8 of the Charter. The Crown concedes that if Mr. America had standing, the search was unreasonable and violated Mr. America's right under Section 8, it follows that the evidence is prima facie inadmissible. Since I conclude that its admission against Mr. America would bring the administration of justice into disrepute, it must be excluded under Section 24.2 of the Charter. The curative proviso does not apply. I would allow the appeal, set aside the convictions, and enter acquittals on all charges. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. Hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademile. Audio engineering by Anthony Rademile. Graphic design by Julie Lundy at julielundyart.com. Music by Matt Rademile at radandkel.com. We're always open to ideas, suggestions, and of course, guest readers. Check us out at Legal Listening on Twitter and at LegalListening.com. We'll talk to you next time.